Well, the first thing we're going to be looking at for a love for God is the source. And I'll have different points, and the first of which is the source. And then we'll be looking at the motive. What is our motive for our love for God? What fuels it? Then we'll be looking at the expression of that love for God. What does it look like? And then we'll be having a look at the blessings, the wonderful blessings in this life that a love for God brings. What benefits does it come with? And lastly, the end. What is the end of our love? What has God promised for those who love him? So let's start first at the source of our love for God. And I want you to turn with me. We were in Deuteronomy 6. I want you to turn with me to Deuteronomy 30, verse 16. Deuteronomy 30, verse 16. And we'll be turning to, to different passages back and forth and, and having a look because at the end of the day, I, I don't want what I say to be uh, what, what is gospel. What what's God, God's word says is truth. So Deuteronomy 30, verse 16. God says this. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. So you can see there from Deuteronomy 30 verse 16 and you can see from Deuteronomy verse 6 that we had before that this is the greatest commandment, that we should love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul and with all our might. And the thing is we have this great command here that we should love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength. And yet if you know anything about the Bible, you will know that this is fundamentally by nature for us impossible. The thing is, the way the Bible puts it is that by nature we cannot love God. We cannot please God. We are born as haters of God. In Psalm 58, in Psalm 58 verse 3, it says that from birth we are haters of God. It says this, the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. They have venom like the venom of a serpent, like the deaf adder that stops its ear so that it does not hear the voice of charmers or of the cunning enchanter. See, from birth, the wicked are estranged from the womb, from the time of conception. What did David say in the Psalms? He said, in sin did my mother conceive me. In the New Testament, in Romans chapter 1, Paul is listing all of these sins disobedient, foolish, faithless to parents. And he mentions another one. He says, we are haters of God. We are haters of God. And the Psalms, again and again, it talks about that we are haters of God. In Colossians 1, it says that we are at enmity with God. We are hostile in mind. The thing is, if you go up to the person on the street and you ask them, are you a good person, they will most likely say, yes, I'm, I'm not too bad. I, I know I've done some bad things, but generally I'm pretty good. And often they will have this view that, that everyone out there is basically good with a bit of bad mixed in. And yet the way the Bible puts it is that we are haters of God. We are sinners. We are 
haters of God who have no love for God in our hearts. Indeed, that we have a love for sin and for sinful things. And we will be looking at that later today when, when Dan gets up here. The thing is, some people say that they love God and yet they love a different God. They love the God that they make in their own minds, a, a God who is an idol. They love a God who is all love but no justice, a God who is all love and mercy but no holiness. And so when we explain the true God of the Bible, a God who is just and holy and a God who can't simply push sin under the rug, a God who is so holy that he can't even look upon sin, a God who has ordained everything, a God who will hold everyone accountable, that God, do you love that God? And the thing is, by nature, we don't love that God. We don't love the true living God of the Bible. So since our hearts are sinful, since our hearts don't love God, they need to be changed. So even though God commands that we must love him with all our heart and with all our soul, the thing is we can never fulfill that command in and of ourselves. And Deuteronomy 30 verse 16, God commands this, but if you have a look up at verse 6, slightly earlier on, God says this. He says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. The thing is there, God says that he will circumcise their hearts. In the Old Testament, that was the sign of the covenant, a sign of part of being God's people. It was a sign of circumcision. And yet it was never an outward sign which was meant to be the end of it. But it was always the inward reality. What God did was that he would circumcise their hearts. He would give them a new heart. He would give them a heart that loved him. The thing is, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, Jesus said. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. With man, these things are impossible. With, with God, all things are possible. And so we see here in Deuteronomy 30 verse 6 that God is the one who changes the heart. God is the one who gives us love for him. In the New Testament, in Romans chapter 2, Paul is talking to the Jews who claimed that they were God's people, who rested in the fact that they were physically circumcised to save them. And yet, yet Paul says this, Romans 2, 28 to 29, he says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. See, Paul's pointing out here that, that what circumcision truly pointed to was a work on the heart. And it wasn't a work done by anyone. It's, it's not done by human hands. But it's a work that is done by the spirit of God. See, at the end of the day, a love for God does not come from us by nature trying to, to will up love for God. It does not come from us trying to, to do what we can in order to, to feel something for God or, or to, to trying to obey in our own strength. But from the very beginning to the very end of our salvation, from before we were saved 
until we, even into eternity, our love, the love that we have for God from beginning to end is from God himself. Now, before we were saved, we could do absolutely nothing to love God. And God's Spirit awakened our hearts and gave us that love for Him. And yet, even in the Christian life, we have duties to do and we have things to obey and we can now love God from the heart. And yet, at the very end of it, the very grace we have to love God must come from Him. Must come from Him. See, the first thing I want you to notice is that love for God is a God-given love. A love for God is a God-given love. We can't manufacture it. We can't earn it. We can't fake it. We can't conjure it up. It is a God-given love. Even take these lights, for example. With the bulb by itself, it cannot work. It needs electricity. It needs something to power it. We can't simply hope for it to come on. But when we came in here this morning, we turned on the lights and the electricity turned on the light and suddenly you get this glow. And with the old lights particularly, you would have not only light, but you would have heat. All right? And that's what we think about when we think of a love for God. There has to be something there to give that heat, to give that light off. And that is God, by his grace, giving us a love for him. So the first thing we see that the very source of our love is God himself, is God himself. Secondly, the motive, what fuels this love? So we've seen who gives it, but what fuels it? How can we increase in our love for God? Well, if you have a look in Romans 5 verse 5, turn with me to Romans 5 verse 5. says this and Paul is, is, is going through different things we have as Christians and the blessed assurance we have of being justified by faith and he's talking about rejoicing in our sufferings and he says and hope does not put us to shame in verse 5 because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit has been given to us and so you see here and this love, God's love, is first and foremost God's love for us. God's love for us. And that's the first motive. What fuels our, our, our love for God is God's love for us. What does Paul say? For, Christ, for the love of Christ compels me. It constrains me to live not for myself, but for him who for our sake died and was raised again. In 1 John 4, it says we love God because he first loved us. So we see there first that when we consider God's love for us and when the Spirit pours God's love into our heart, when we come to a greater understanding of God's love for us, that fuels and motivates our love for him and for others. But here we're talking about our love for him God's love, Christ's love, constrains us, compels us. The word there means hems us in. It's, it's, it's like we couldn't go any other way. But God's love, Christ's love, constrains us. So that's the first motive, God's love for us. Another motive, it's God's work of salvation for us. And all of these things are interconnected, God's love for us. But specifically, God's work of salvation 
In Luke chapter 7, if you remember, Jesus is, in verses 36 to 50, Jesus is reclining at the table. He's in a Pharisee's house. He's at a Pharisee's house and he's reclining at the table. And a woman comes up to him with a, a, an alabaster flask of ointment. And she is weeping. She is weeping. She is distraught. And she begins to wet his feet with her tears. And she wipes them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet, anointed him with the ointment. Now in church recently, we've been looking at another occasion, another story where, where um, one of Jesus' close friends does a similar thing. And yet here, this woman in a slightly different story is, is doing this. And, and if you can imagine Jesus' feet at, at, at that time, Jesus' feet would have been disgusting and gross and dirty. They're not like our feet, which are cocooned in socks and cocooned in shoes a lot of the time. But the feet would get dusty and would get dirty and would get smelly, particularly with all the, all the animal um, poo on the streets. It was not a nice thing to deal with someone's feet. And it was the job of the lowliest servant. And yet here this woman is getting down and she is weeping touching his feet, she's kissing his feet even more and anointing them with this ointment. Now when this Pharisee saw this, he was shocked that a woman would do this to Jesus. It's not, are you not a prophet, she says? Is he not a prophet? This woman is a sinner. Forgive me, it doesn't say prophet. This woman is a sinner. Teacher. Now if you come... Pardon me. If you come down, Jesus tells a parable to illustrate this, this point. And he says in verse 41, A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And a denarius was a day's wage. So one owed more than or a year and a half's wage and the other 50. And it says when he, then they could not pay, he cancelled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? And Simon the Pharisee answered, The one I suppose for whom you cancelled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And see, Jesus says there, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Now, Jesus is not saying there if you have a small amount of sin and you're forgiven that you have a small amount of of, of love for God. What he's saying there is that she knows that she is a sinner. She knows that her sin is great before God. And knowing that and knowing that therefore of of that magnitude of sin which she has then been forgiven, she loves much. For he who has been forgiven much loves much. You can see here how much this woman loved the Lord Jesus Christ. 
how much this woman loved him that she would do this. And when we understand God's work of salvation, when we understand how much sin we've been forgiven, we will love God more. We will love Christ more. And I want to ask you, do you realize how much you have been forgiven? Do you realize the infinite weight of sin that you have been forgiven, which has been pardoned, which, has, which God has said, as far as the east is from the west, so far have I removed your transgression from you. I have trampled all your sins, your iniquities underfoot. He says, I have cast them into the depths of the sea, that I remember them no more. Do you know how many sins he has cast into the sea? Do you now know how many sins that he has forgiven you? But when you do, you realize, when you realize how much you've been forgiven, you will come to love God even more. See, when we understand salvation, when we understand the gospel and how much we've been forgiven by Christ and how much Christ paid on the cross, we will come to love him even more. See, this woman was willing to give up any sense of dignity she had, any sense of status. She knew that she would be looked down upon by the Pharisee and the others with him there. See, love for God, love for Christ overcame any fear of, that she would have for man or for what others would think. She had no shame. See, God's saving grace is enough motivation for us to love God, to love Christ. And yet another reason that we can love God is not just for his saving grace, but for his sustaining grace and for his sanctifying grace. In Psalm 18, verse 1, it says, I love you, O Lord, my strength. I love you, O Lord, my strength. And there the psalmist knows that every strength, every bit of strength that he has comes from God. See, David's heart in this psalm, in Psalm 18, goes out to God. And that's the first thing he says in that psalm, is his love for God. Why? His heart goes out to God because he's, God is his refuge his fortress and his rock to whom he can flee to in times of trouble. His God is always there all day long. And the thing is, his heart adores the God who is with him every step of the way. Does our lack of relying on God show how little that we love him? Does our lack of relying on God show how little we love him? Indeed, friends, we must cry out, Lord, I love you, my strength. Lord, I love you for you give me strength every single moment. As the hymn goes, Lord, I need you every hour. I need you every hour. Is, is that what you cry out? Is that the cry of your soul? Lord, I, I love you, O Lord, my strength. And you cry out just as we looked at before, Lord, I love you, my salvation. My salvation. Indeed, those who have childlike faith, those who have a biblical faith, will cry out in reliance upon God. Why? Because they love God. Just as a child loves their parent and cries out to their parent as a sign of love and of trust, so we must also cry out with love and dependence on God. And lastly, we must love God. What fuels our love? is our love for God himself, his character. In Psalm 63, 
In Psalm 63, David is crying out to God. And he says, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. Listen to the words he says. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Why? So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. And because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. See, David here loves God. Imagine if you've been walking around in the desert for days and days and days and your throat was parched and someone said to you, over there, uh, a, a kilometre away, is fresh water. Would you hang around and stay where you are? Would you head in the opposite direction? Would you loiter? Would you st- what would you do? No, you'd, you'd go for that water straight away. You would do anything to have that water. In the same way, David uses this illustration here and he says, as my flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. That's how much his soul desired God. As much as that parched person desired that water in the, in the desert. And David's writing this, if, if you notice in Psalm 63, it says at the top, when he was in the wilderness of Judah. So he's thirsty, presumably. He's thirsty And yet he's not thinking so much about his physical thirst. He's thinking about how much he longs for God. And what specifically? He says, I have looked upon you, beholding your power and your glory. And after that, the steadfast love of God is better than life. Better than life. Have you ever been thirsty? Really thirsty? I thought about this the other day and I thought, "I I haven't really thirsted much. I always have water on hand. There's water at tap. There's water at my place at home. There's, there's water everywhere I go. And we don't often realize what it's like to thirst. And yet our souls should be thirsting and longing after God and who he is. As our knowledge of God increases, our love should increase as well. If it's not, then the knowledge you have of God is... It, it, it's not going from your head to the, to the heart. As your knowledge of God increases, so should your love. So should your love. We must meditate upon God and who he is. We must meditate before, as we're seeing, on his saving grace. And we must meditate upon his uh, preserving grace and his sanctifying grace. And when we do these three things... We will come to love God more and more and more. As we go along in the Christian life, this is something that happens. We grow to understand our salvation in Christ. We grow to understand God's character. We grow to understand his provision more and more. We should be. And as we do, our love for him should increase, increase and increase. What does Paul say? His desire is that we know the height, the depth, the breadth and the length of the love of Christ. And that is what we should long for, to know the love of God. And as we do, our love for God will increase and grow. Or what does it look like? What is, a, what is the expression of a love for God? Is it lovey-dovey feelings, as is so often portrayed as, in, as, as love? Well, is it feelings or is it not? Is it merely a bang? Is it not? Is, how, how does everything fit together? Well, as you saw in Psalm 63 of what I just said there, David desires God. He longs for God. And that's one of the first things we see about a love for God. 
There is a desire there. There is a longing for God. Some people say, well, love in the Bible is more about an action. And that's partly true. And yet in the Bible, again and again, there is a, a, a thirsting after God. There is a desire for God that we must have. There are plenty of people out there who do outwardly religious things. They seem to obey God, but they never do it from the heart. And one of the things that Jesus said is that you must do it from the heart or you'll be like the Pharisees, like a whitewashed tomb, looking good on the outside, but inside the dead. And so we saw in Psalm 63 just then that there must be a desire for God. Desires are important. However, I will say this, we should never measure our salvation on our desires. Our salvation does not rest on our feelings because feelings come and go. They wax and they wane. They increase and they decrease. And there will be days you wake up and you will not feel any desire for the Lord. And if you've never had that, then that is brilliant. If you've always had a desire for God every day, all day, then that's amazing. That is so good. And yet, so often our feelings come and go. They increase and decrease. But we must always seek to grow in our desire for God. But I will say this. If you have never had a desire for God, then you have never known him. If you never have had a love in terms of a feeling, a desire for God, a yearning after God, then you have never known him. For that is one of the marks of a Christian, a love for God that manifests itself in a desire for him. I'm not saying your desire has to always be there, but you have to see do I love God? Do I actually feel for him? Because that's our, one of our standards of marriage or even a friendship, right? We, we can't expect to, to be married to someone. We can't expect to be friends with someone and not feel anything for them at all. And yet we must have the same standard or even higher, I would expect, for our relationship with God. And so we must seek to grow in our desire for him. Has God given you a desire for him? And we must always continue to assess our hearts. Do we have that desire for him? Because like a needle points to the north, so our desires so often show who is our king. And as, our, as a needle points north, so often our desires show where our heart rests in at that time. So often when my heart is cold and dull, it shows that I have been less frequent in prayer. It shows that I have been infrequent in, 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 in seeing God and who he is and seeking to apply those truths to myself and meditating on them. And I have a think this morning, do I desire God as I should? Do I desire God as I should? Or do I desire other things more, the things of the world? as we'll be looking at later, sin, ourselves, whatever it is. The second thing we see is that, that love for God shows itself in obedience. If you remember back from when I was reading just before in Deuteronomy 30, it says, you shall love the, the Lord your God. And what it says after that, you shall love the Lord your God.
If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. In Deuteronomy 30 verse 6, it says it again. The Lord God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring that you will love the Lord your God that you may live. Right? And then he talks about obedience. So we see there, and even in, in, in John 14 in the New Testament, what, did he, what does Jesus say? If you love me, you will obey my commandments. You will keep my commandments. So you can see there that there is a direct link between love for God and obedience to God. If you do not obey God, then you do not love him. That's as simple as that, the way the Bible puts it. If you do not obey God, you do not love him. See, I'm not talking about a sinless perfection, but a direction of life. I'm not talking about a sinless perfection. I'm talking about a sincere performing. A sincere performance. Not a performance in terms of a show, but a keeping a sincere obedience to God, seeking to obey him from the heart. See, if you love God, his will and his desires and his priorities become your desires and your will and your priorities. See, the path of the Christian life is one of love for God. And the path of the Christian life is one of obedience to God. And the path in the Christian life, in, in, in the Old Testament particularly, it's talked about as, 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 as walking on a path. And it says if you love God, you will keep his commandments. And when you keep his commandments, you will be walking along that path. In Proverbs, it talks about again and again that we must turn aside neither to the left nor to the right. We must not turn aside to go into sin. But we must love God and we must seek to walk in his ways. Do you ponder the path of your feet? Do you ponder the path of your feet? Do you keep your heart? Do you seek to walk in obedience to God? For indeed, if this is one of the tests of whether or not you love God, do you keep his commandments? Jesus even said, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. See, one of the ways that we show our obedience is in our love for each other as well. In 1 John 4, verse 21, and you're welcome to turn there if you like. 1 John chapter 4, verse 21. I'll go from verse 19. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, right, and that's what we're looking at today, loving God. If anyone says, verse 20, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Indeed, one of the ways that we obey God is in loving our brothers, loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. 
In Romans 13, verse 8 to 10, it, it talks about that if we love our fellow Christians, it is, is keeping the law. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And so, in 1 John, what John is saying is that if you do not love your brother, if you do not obey God, then how can you love God? If you do not love your brother, brothers whom you see, how can you love God whom you do not see? And so you see here that in order to love God, it must come from a desire for God. And yet it will also show itself in our obedience to God, in, in obeying Him in everything, in, in keeping to His commandments, in not turning aside to sin, but obeying Him sincerely from the heart in everything. And one of the ways that we do that is in loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. Love shows itself in a desire for God and an obedience to Him. Well, we've looked at the source of our love. We've looked at, uh, we, we've looked at the motive for our love. We've looked at the expression of our, of our love. What does it look like? And now I want you to see the blessings of love for God. The blessings of our love for God. And I want this to encourage you. What benefits does it come with? What benefits does God promise for those who love Him? In 1 Corinthians, in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 3, it says this. Just a small verse. But if anyone loves God... He is known by God. Now in that, broader, in that chapter talking about idols and eating food, sacrifice to idols, and making sure that you do not cause your, your, your fellow believer to, to stumble, it's a small verse and you can be tempted to quickly pass over it. But it's an important verse. It says, if anyone loves God, he is known by God. See, this is the foundation for all other blessings that come from loving God. To be known by God. And see, to be known by God is, is, is to have a relationship with Him, to be in intimacy with Him. See, in, in, in John 17 verse 3, it says this, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Does it sound strange? It's what eternal life is, to, to know God. It doesn't mean to know about God, because then everyone could just have eternal life by just reading a few things about God. But no, to know God is to actually have a relationship with Him. And not just to know God, but for Him to know us. And that's the important thing we're looking at here. Whoever loves God is known by God. In Psalm 1 it says, The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And you think to yourself, doesn't God know everything? Doesn't he know both the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked? And yet in a particular sense, even though God knows everything, in the Bible, the way know and the word know and what that means is important. In the Old Testament it says, For Abraham knew his wife, Sarah, and she conceived. See, know is more than just to know about. To know indicates a relationship and intimacy. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. He cares for them. He loves them. 
In 2 Timothy 2.19, it says, The Lord knows those who are his. What does Jesus say about his sheep in John 10? He says, I know my own, and my own know me. And Jesus is talking there about a particular love that he has for his people. See, for God to know you is for God to love you. For God to know you is for God to care for you. And I want you to notice here it's important. It says, for whoever loves God is known by God. It doesn't say for whoever loves God will be known by God. It's not in the future and it's not conditional upon our love for God. God knowing and loving us doesn't hinge upon whether we love God or how much we conjure up any love for God or, or how, much we, how much we feel for him or how much we do. No, we don't earn any acceptance before God through our love. It states a fact. Whoever loves God is known by God. The two go together. Doesn't this bring comfort to us? If you love God, if you see that God has placed a love for you in his heart, be assured God knows and loves you. And even though your love goes like this, up and down, up and down, God's love doesn't go down. Even though our love is so small and so weak and so frail, God's love for us is strong and it's steadfast. It doesn't go up and down. It is infinite. It's eternal. It is everlasting. It's without limit. It's funny how Paul says, I want you to know the height, depth, breadth, and length of the love of Christ. What does he then say? Which surpasses knowledge. Which surpasses knowledge. I want you to know something that surpasses knowledge. We're never going to fully understand God's love for us in Christ Jesus. We're never going to fully understand it. But I want you to know that if you love God, you can be assured from this verse, that God loves you and you are known by God. In Romans 8.28, we have another promise. And it says this, and you may, have, you may know this verse well, and it says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Interesting, it's... it's it, it would have been just as true, maybe even more so, to, to say, and, and we know that for those whom God loves, he works everything together for good, because we know that's true. But it says there, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For, good. for those who are called according to his purpose. God calls us according to his purpose, and we love him. Those two things are equated there. But the promise there is God works everything for your good. Not some things, not things now and then, not things on Tuesdays, Monday, Monday, Mondays and Thursdays, but all things, at all times, every single molecule in this universe is for his glory, but for our good as well. Indeed, all, it says all things, it says together, it's comprehensive, it's a comprehensive care for those who love him. Indeed, if God has given you a love for him and you delight in him, and work for him, God has promised that he will work things, everything for you, not because you love him, but because he loves you, because you are his. But having that love for God in our hearts, seeing that love he places there assures us that he will work things 
for our good. A third promise, John 14, 21 and 23. Let me read that for you. John 14, 21 and 23. I used to read over these verses as well. John 14, 21 and 23. It says, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Verse 23, Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. And you have to be careful with these verses. Because this time, unlike before, it says if we love God and keep his commandments, he will love us and he will make our home uh, with us. And he, Christ will manifest himself to us. And I don't want you to go away thinking, oh, I have, to, I have to love God for him to love me at all. That's not true. That's not true. But the love that is talked about here is a pleasure God has. Just like a father with, with their child that father still loves the child, no matter if that child is disobedient or not. He still loves him as his child. And yet there is a pleasure or a displeasure that that father will have with the child based on their obedience. It doesn't change the father's acceptance of the child and, and, and love for the child. And here I'm talking about the ideal of, of a parent. But the pleasure that a father has in their son... When a son or a daughter obeys their father or their mother, that pleases the parent. That pleases the parent. They say, well done. And when we obey God, we do have his smile upon us. In one sense, again, I, want you, I don't want you to come away thinking, so Josh says we have to work in order to have God's acceptance. I'm not saying that. But we have the joy of knowing that as we obey God, he has promised that he will love us and he will reveal himself to us. He will show himself to us. Indeed, as we seek God, as we seek to obey him, Christ said that he will manifest himself to us. He will do it. It's a promise. We'll see more of Christ and his beauty and his glory. As a Christian, we have to see something of his glory and his beauty, but we will see more and more and more of it the more that we seek to obey him, the more we live for him. We see there from this passage those three things. Christ will reveal himself more to us. It says that God will come and make his home with us. Not that he is not dwelling in our hearts already, but that he will make residence in our hearts more and more and more and more. And as he makes his residence in our hearts more and more and more and more, we will have more and more assurance that we are his children. This is not talking about our acceptance, acceptance before God. This is talking about our assurance of God. Our assurance of God and his love for us and of his presence in our hearts. The thing is, these wonderful blessings belong to those who love God. Belong to those who love God. 
And we have these blessings. God gives us these promises and blessings that our hearts would be filled even more with love for him. If they weren't filled with love enough for him already, for his salvation and for who, is, who he is in his character and for his daily grace, he's promised us so much more in the blessings that we have day to day to day as we seek to obey him. And it is hard to obey him. It is hard to live the Christian life and to put off sin. And yet we have these wonderful blessings. And I want you to see one more blessing that God promises to those who are his people and those who love him. His glorious promise, not for now, his glorious promise that will come in the future. We have eternal life now as a down payment, but God promises eternal life for those who love him. Have a look with me in James chapter 1. James chapter 1. James 1 verse 12, it says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. See that crown of life there. It's talked about in other ways in the New Testament. It's talked about the crown of glory in 1 Peter 5. Talk about the crown of righteousness in 2 Timothy, the imperishable crown in 1 Corinthians, and the crown of rejoicing in 1 Thessalonians. This crown is the same crown. It's not like we'll be juggling you know, five different crowns, but this one crown, these are all characteristics of eternal life. Life with God in heaven. The crown of life. And there will be an element in there where there, God has promised uh, treasures in heaven to his people, whatever that will, may be. But God has promised eternal life to those who love him. The thing is, in James chapter 2, verse 5, in James 1, it says that we receive a crown of life. In James 2, verse 5, it says, Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? The thing is that you are in, if you love God, you will inherit the kingdom. If you love God, you, you may not have riches in this world, but you will have rich, the riches of faith, treasures in heaven, that crown of life, all of these things God has promised to those who love him. <clears throat> See, in the race that we run as Christians, in the marathon that we run, our love for God is, it does not keep us in the race. God does that. Our love for God doesn't, it doesn't even get us in the race. As, 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 as hard work may get us into races in this life, physical races. But the thing is, our love for God is, is, is like the number that we bear, in a sense, the love of God that he's put in our hearts is like the number that we wear, the number that we wear, so that we know that we are in the race. It's not the prize. It's not what keeps us in the race. It's not how we get in the race. But it's an assurance. It's one of the signs that we are in the race. And at its end, the prize, life with God in heaven. Eternal life. Life that never ends. And indeed, if we have a love for God now, as we saw in Psalm 63, a love for God where we desire God, 
it's going to be so much more in heaven. It's, even going, to, it's going to be an even better reward than the rewards promised in this life because it's going to be a full, complete knowledge of, uh, of God's love. It's going to be a, a much better, sorry, love for God and a knowledge of his love for us. And we will be coming for all eternity to an even greater knowledge of his love for us. But what is by faith now will be sight then. What we long for and hope for when we see him will be complete. Indeed, longing for him now, our hearts will be fully satisfied in heaven and they'll be fully satisfied for eternity. So we've seen that for those who love God, they have a love given by the Spirit. They are motivated by God's character, his love for us in salvation and daily grace. Those who love God will long for him and seek to obey him in all things. Those who love God are known by him. They'll have things worked for their good. They will know his love and presence with them. And they will have at the end eternal life. From beginning to end, our love for God is is pretty God-centered. From beginning to end, our love for God is pretty God-centered. I want to ask you this morning, do you love God? Do you love God? And if you find yourself here this morning, as I so often do, with a, with, a, with a low desire for the Lord. Now maybe recently you, 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 your heart has felt cold, even as the mornings have been cold. Or maybe you, you find that you've been less zealous in serving him and, and obeying him and, and walking in his ways. I want you to think upon these truths now. I want you to think upon these, these great truths for those who love God. I want you to remind yourselves of them. And be assured that if you love God, he loves you and you are known by him. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and I don't know your hearts truly. I don't know your hearts truly. If you, maybe you've never truly loved God, even in a place like this, even with you here this morning, maybe you have never truly loved God. I don't want to put that to you. If you've never truly loved God, if you've never truly desired him as he is revealed in the Bible, never strive to obey him from the heart, maybe you have to think to yourself, you've never been saved. It's not my words. It's what God's word says. I remember back to when I was growing up. <clears throat> growing up, I grew up in a Christian family and... I knew all the answers, and if I was outside the home, at least I was a goody two-shoes. And coming into middle school and, and, and high school, I even, in high school, I burnt myself out serving the Lord, serving the Lord, doing things for church. And yet I never had a love for God. In all that time, I never had a love for God. I looked like a Christian. I looked like on the outside, like a whitewashed tomb. And yet in second year uni, God worked wondrously upon my heart. And I realized what I had been missing is that I had never had a love for God. 
I had never had a love for God. So now I didn't just serve him because that was the thing to do. I served them out of a love for him. I earnestly desire to obey him with all my heart. And if, he, if you're here this morning and, and maybe you've grown up in a Christian church, Christian family, and you've never loved God, cry out to God for a new heart. Cry out to God for a heart, not of stone that is unmoving and cold and dead and hard, but, and hard, but cry out to him for a new heart, a heart of flesh, as it says in the Old Testament, a heart that beats for him. Search the Bible and see his love for sinners. See his love for his people. See his love as it is offered in the gospel. Cry out to him for a new heart that he would save you. For God's love is so amazing as it is offered us in the gospel. God's love cannot be measured. Indeed, when he puts a love for him in our hearts... We are filled with thankfulness for him. Let me pray. Gracious God, we praise you and glorify you and magnify you, O Lord, for you have loved us. For indeed, blessed Lord, if we are people, you, O Lord, have loved us from all eternity. And Lord, you will love us for all eternity into the future. For indeed, blessed Lord, you have promised. We thank you, O Lord and Father, for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that we see your love most clearly expressed in him. We did not love you, but that you loved us and sent your Son to be the propitiation, to, to bear your wrath for our sins. We thank you, Lord, for your love for us. O Lord, I ask and pray. For those of us here who are Christians, Lord, please give us a love for you. For indeed, O Lord, this is the greatest commandment, that we love you with all our heart and all our soul and all our mind and all our strength. And Lord, we know that love comes from you. Help us, Lord, now and forevermore to love you with even greater an even greater measure of love. Blessed Lord, be with us today, I pray. Lord, may, we, may our hearts be warmed. May our hearts be comforted and encouraged. Lord, if there's any in here who does not know you, Lord, I ask and pray that you would change their heart from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. Lord, as it says in Deuteronomy, please circumcise their heart that they may love you and walk in your ways all the days of their life and love you for all eternity. Please be with us this morning, Lord, by your grace and for your glory. In the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.